0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise reading to you the Thursday, October twenty sixth, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, intervals of clouds and sunshine a high of 72, with a low of 57. On Friday, partly sunny and mild, a high of 71, with a low of 58. On Saturday, warm with sunshine, a high of 72, with a low of 54. On Sunday, cloudy and cooler with a shower, a high of 61, with a low of 56. And on Monday, Pleasant with Clouds and Sun, a high of 66 with a low of 47. The sun will rise today at 7.05 a.m., set at 5.44 p.m. for a total of 10 hours and 39 minutes of daylight. In the lottery, the numbers game dated Wednesday, October 25th, midday, 7 Zero zero four again seven zero zero four the numbers game Wednesday, October twenty fifth evening nine nine two two again nine nine two two Mash cash for Wednesday, October twenty fifth one five fourteen seventeen twenty one again One, five, fourteen, seventeen, twenty-one. Powerball for Wednesday, October 25th. Twenty-five, twenty-seven, forty-one, fifty-three, sixty-eight. With an extra ball of two. Again, twenty-five, twenty-seven, forty-one, fifty-three, sixty-eight. With a Powerball of two. And lucky for life dated Wednesday, October 25th, one 32 38 with a lucky ball of five. Again, one 32 38 with a lucky ball of five. On the front page, it was alarming. Complaints to police about Hyannis bar manager Shea dead-end records show. By Rachel Devaney, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Hyannis. It was a stormy night on December 5th, 2009, when John C. Shea, parked at an angle, left his car running, and stumbled up an accessible ramp into Puff the Magic. He was clearly really drunk, so I said, Why don't you come back tomorrow, and I'll buy you a beer, and we'll watch the game, said David Wood, then owner of the bar and cigar lounge on Main Street at the time. I shook his hand, and he grabbed it really hard, and he said, "'Do you know who I am?' And he threw me into the air and across the bar. I landed on a glass table that smashed,' Wood said during a telephone interview." When Wood called the police, Shea began throwing patio space heaters around the bar. Mary Kent, Wood's wife at the time, came out of the restroom to respond to the commotion. Shea picked her up and threw her into a piano. She suffered three broken ribs, said Wood in a recent telephone interview. Bruce Bans represented Wood and Kent in the civil case that followed the incident. When police arrived, I remember hearing two cops saying, Do you know who that is, said Wood, who now lives in Texas. I had a feeling we were going to have a problem with the cops. Shea was going to get some leniency. A judge in 2009 criminal case Against Shea in connection with the incident, dismissed the charges. Court records were sealed and are unavailable for public review, including the name of the judge, the charges, and what precipitated it being sealed. According to Times Archives, Shea was arraigned on December 6, 2009, on two counts of assault and battery and vandalism, and a pretrial hearing was scheduled for January 8, 2010. At court, his lawyer said he's gotten treatment. And he just walked right out of the courtroom, said Wood. It was open and shut. It was alarming. The treatment was for alcohol addiction, Shea's attorney said at the time, according to Bayans. Shea did not want to comment on the record about the incident during a September in-person interview. Wood and Kent... Eventually won a civil case, which is available for public review, against Shea in 2014. A jury found him guilty of assault and battery in the 2009 incident at Puff the Magic. Shea was required to pay $50,000 to the couple. The jury verdict appeared to be the first time that Shea was held accountable for his actions. Barnstable police and court records reveal Shea has a history of criminal complaints going back to 2001, all of which were ultimately not prosecuted or were dismissed, according to police, court records, and Times archives. Viral video shines spotlight on John Shea. Shea gained, Shea gained public attention after a viral video of him appearing to verbally accost a black man on Main Street Hyannis last spring, and in, that included racial slurs, he now faces charges in connection with the incident. The current criminal case against Shea is underway in Barnstable Superior Court after three cell phone videos of him on a sidewalk on Main Street in Hyannis went viral. The incident, which began late on May 31st and extended to early on June 1st, leaves Shea facing charges of three counts of threatening to commit a crime Assault to intimidate based on race or color, assault and battery to intimidate based on race or color, a civil rights violation and intimidation of a witness. Shea is white, and the person who is alleged to have been assaulted, Millian Phillips of Medford, identifies as Jamaican and Armenian. Phillips' foot was injured in the incident. Shea pleaded not guilty to the charges during his July 27th arraignment. His lawyer, Kevin Reddington, has argued in court that Shea's record is clean with no prior convictions. Previous allegations against John Shea and Barnstable police records, but dating from the early 2000s, there have been allegations of assault, breaking and entering, and a civil rights violation that have led to no charges, no prosecution, or liquor licensing citations, according to public records obtained by the Times. The Times requested all records from the Barnstable Police Department that referenced Shea. The records included complaints made against Shea and reports made by Shea, most often on the job as the bar manager. In light of my office presenting an investigation to the grand jury that resulted in seven indictments which remain pending in Barnstable County Superior Court, I should refrain from commenting about John Shea at this time. Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galboyce told The Times on September 19th. Former Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe, who held the office from 2003 to 2022, told The Times he doesn't know Shay and won't comment on someone he does not know. A landlord, a property owner, and a bar manager. Shea, 60, is a Hyannis resident, a father, a property owner in Barnstable, and a bar manager in Hyannis with 40 years of experience, according to public records, and an in-person interview with him on September 8th. Shea held the job of manager of Trader Ed's restaurant in Hyannis at the time of the alleged incident involving Phillips. The incident occurred when Shea was off-duty and about a half a mile away from Trader Ed's. A waterfront... Cabana Bar and Restaurant Trader Ed's is known for its nightlife at the Hyannis Marina, a 180-slip complex. The marina is owned by Wayne Kirker. Kirker fired Shea a few days after the videos went viral. On August sixteenth, an application was filed by Trader Ed's with the Barnstable Licensing Authority to change its manager from Shea to Jared Payne, according to an authority meeting agenda. Payne was approved by the authority and Aaron Logan, Interim Deputy Director of Asset Management and Licensing for the Town of Barnstable. The State Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission approved Payne on September 25th. During the September 8th interview at a Hyannis coffee shop, Shea said he was 100 days sober. He said he is very good at his job and loves hospitality, business, and making customers happy. As a bar manager, customers can get intoxicated and get violent, said Shea, said he had to intervene, which can involve physical restraint and physical contact. It's not like we're serving holy water, Shea said. Customers are constantly under the influence and babysitting people like that can sometimes take its toll. What is in the public records? What is missing? There are eight reports of arrest and related incident reports involving Shea, according to the Barnstable Police Department response to a Times public records request. Generally, the eight incidents can be categorized as reports of allegations against Shea of breaking and entering, a civil rights violation, or assault. There was an incident report alleging overserving at Trader Ed's that mentioned Shea in his role as bar manager. Withheld by the police department were five call log entries, 20 reports of arrest seven offense reports, two field investigation reports, and two warrant request reports that concern or involve Shea, according to the Bunstable Police Department response. Those records were withheld due to the public records law exemptions. The response stated, because the records were withheld, there was no way to identify if police arrested anyone in connection with the incidents set out in the 20 reports. The nature of Shea's involvement was also withheld, including whether he was a victim or a witness. In the public records provided to the Times were also 47 police log entries with seven matching audio files. 25 of those documented calls were made by Shea to Barnstable Police, and 14 of those calls reported disturbances at Trader Ed's. A police log entry is from a municipal police department's daily log, which is a record of all responses to complaints received, crimes reported, the names and addresses of persons arrested, and the charges against such persons arrested. A police arrest report provides details on an arrest made by police, and a police incident report provides details on police responses to citizen calls for assistance, reports of accidents, or reports of crimes being committed a 2015 allegation against Shea of breaking and entering. On September 13, 2015, Jeremy Mustakas and his girlfriend Sarah Flattery told police that Shea broke into a home owned by Mustakas. Flattery said Shea was drunk and was yelling her name when he entered the residence, according to a, a police report. When Mustakas asked Shea to leave, Shea is alleged to have walked to Flattery's car, taken a suitcase from the vehicle. Shea then left in his Mercedes-Benz convertible, according to the report. A few days later, Flattery told police that Shea's friend named Beezer in the police report called her and said he would return her suitcase. Flattery was uncomfortable with the arraignment. Arrangement, police told Shea to bring the suitcase to the Barnstable Police Station instead. When Shea arrived at the station, he told police that he didn't have the suitcase, according to the police report. Shea also told police that he went to the Mustakas' house to conduct a well-being check on Flattery, who he said was his ex-girlfriend of seven years. That same day, Flattery told police that Shea came to her job offering her $500 to replace the suitcase and asked her to call the police and drop the charges. Shea was arrested and faced charges of breaking and entering in the nighttime to commit a misdemeanor, breaking and entering a motor vehicle in the nighttime to commit a felony, and larceny of property over $250. During a jury trial in 2016, flattery didn't appear. All charges against Shea were dismissed. Allegation of civil rights violation. In July 2009, a woman who identified herself to police as a gay woman told police that Shea used homophobic slurs to address her and three other women after they complained at Trader Ed's that the valet took an hour to retrieve their vehicle. Shea is alleged to have told the woman to leave and yelled at them, according to the police report. Fearing they would be physically assaulted, the group called the police. With a lack of cooperation from Shea, Barnstable Police Officer Keith M. Sexton requested a hearing for a violation of civil rights. According to the police report, the paperwork didn't specify why charges were never filed against Shea, but does note that the incident was forwarded to prosecutors and the State Alcohol Beverage Control Commission. During the September 8th interview, Shea said the alleged victim misheard what he said. Allegations of Assault Against John Shea 2020-2022 through In August 2020, Barnstable Patrol Officer Michael Lima responded to the 19th Hole Tavern in Hyannis. According to a police report, Shea met Lima, Lima at the bar's entrance and said he had everything under control because Lima knew Shea wasn't an employee at the bar. He asked Shea questions and Shea became uncooperative, according to the report. A man approached Lima and said Shea followed him into the bathroom and punched him in the head. The incident was entered into the police report as a simple assault and battery, but no charges were filed. In June 2021, a man told police that Shea pushed him and threw him to the ground at Embargo Restaurant in Hyannis, according to a Barnstable police log entry. At the time, Shea told police that the man hit him in retaliation embargo bartenders and a bouncer confirmed shay's version of the story and a correlating emergency 911 call reviewed as an audio file by the times the alleged victim said he was assaulted by john shay the dispatcher seemed to know shay and said johnny shay assaulted you the man making the call became disturbed that the dispatcher seemed to know shay and disconnected the call the man's name was not listed on the record on June 24, 2022, Shea is alleged to have assaulted a relative, according to the police records. The case was dismissed due to a lack of prosecution. Lack of prosecution means the case was dismissed because of a lack of evidence. Alleged incidents by town bylaws violations spitting. As early as 2000, Shea has been associated with a handful of alleged infractions at businesses in downtown Hyannis, according to police reports. In December 2000, former Barnstable Police Chief Paul McDonald alleged he saw Shea, who was the manager of the former Sophie's nightclub on Main Street in Hyannis at the time, leave the bar at 2.40 a.m. with an off-duty Yarmouth police officer whose name was redacted from the police report. Sophie's was required to close by 1 a.m. and McDonald approached Shea and informed him that he was in violation of town rules. The incident was reported as a liquor law violation to the town by Barnstable police. No record of a related citation was available from the town. On March 28, 2011, Wood testified at a Barnstable Licensing Authority hearing at Town Hall asking the board to deny a liquor license renewal to Trader Ed, according to Meeting Minutes. For Wood, it was an opportunity to inform the board about the incident involving Shea at Puff the Magic in 2009. Wood told the Times that he warned the board that Shea running Trader Ed's accidents were awaiting to happen. At an April 11, 2011 board meeting, board chairman Martin Hoxie, a retired Barnstable police lieutenant, said that Kirker is the manager of record at Trader Ed's, not Shea, according to the meeting minute. Unless we see something proving that is not the case, this has nothing to do with his authority, Hoxie said to Wood at the meeting. The board renewed Trader Ed's liquor license at that meeting, according to the minute's. In August 2015, Shea was reported as spitting in a customer's face at Trader Ed's in a police log. In July 2016, Shea is alleged to have identified himself falsely as a police officer at 7-Eleven in Hyannis and spit on the customer, who reported the incident to police, according to a police log. Shea, in the September 8th interview with the Times, declined to comment on the spitting allegations. In two Barnstable Police Log entries from October 2021 and July 2022, Shea is accused of indecent exposure and public urination at Embargo Restaurant and Trader Ed's. During the September 8th interview with the Times reporter, Shea declined to comment about the allegations. The Times reported Shea was charged with assault and battery on May 17, 2001. No information related to the arrest could be provided by the Barnstable District Court or Barnstable Superior Court. The case was dismissed, according to the Times. The Barnstable Licensing Authority doesn't review arrests or police investigations. Generally speaking, John Flores, a board member, said during a phone interview, the board reviews and makes decisions only on complaints from the community that are made to the board in writing, Flores said. If someone brought a complaint, I would definitely want to look into it and have it researched and figured out if there was a violation occurring and move forward. There are no complaints in writing related to the alleged incident of May 31st and June 1st between Shea and Phillips. Michael Conover, a West Yarmouth resident who lives near Trader Ed's, called the licensing authority on June 7th to express her disapproval of Shea, according to Logan, the town licensing administration. Conover also asked about the status of the liquor license for Trader Ed's. I advised that Trader Ed's currently has an active seasonal liquor license. I added that matter was under an active investigation by the Barnstable Police Department, Logan said of her call with Conover. With a new manager on the horizon, Flora said Trader Ed's has turned the page and is now moving in a new direction. The town's licensing officials and the Barnstable Town Council have been lax in their oversight, Wood said. Based on his experience, the licensing board members are appointed by the town council. Town council member Eric R. Steinhilber, who is the council's liaison to the licensing board, referred the times to the licensing board for comment. What is next for John Shea? Shea asked that people don't judge him in his recovery from alcohol addiction. It's been difficult, he said in the September 8th interview with the Times. Everyone makes mistakes, he said. His intention is to do his best going forward. He said he wants to continue to try to prove himself to the community, family, and friends. The next front page story. Breast Cancer Rates Higher on the Cape by Rashid. Tabassum moonjib Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. In 1991, when Cheryl Asimo, a former elementary school teacher and a Barnstable resident, was diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age, she was determined to find out why she had gotten the disease so young. Asamo, now Executive Director of Massachusetts Breast Cancer Coalition, spends all her time raising awareness about the disease. According to the National Cancer Institute, nearly 298,000 women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer and more than 43,000 will die of the disease in 2023. One in eight women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. October is globally observed as the Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Massachusetts has a high incidence rate, but Cape Cod has an alarming rate. Massachusetts as a whole has an incidence rate higher than the national average. The national incident rate is 127 patients per 100,000 women, whereas in Massachusetts, we're at 136 patients, said Dr. Jill Oxley, breast surgeon and director of breast care services at Cape Cod Healthcare. According to the coalition, 1993 statewide data showed breast cancer incidence rates were significantly higher on Cape Cod than in the rest of Massachusetts. The rates have been relatively stable since then. According to the National Cancer Institute, and based on data from 2016 through 2020, Barnstable County has approximately 310 new breast cancer cases in females annually regardless of age or race. Rates of breast cancer in Barnstable County are 14% higher than Massachusetts and 22% higher than the U.S. average. Based on most recent information from the National Cancer Institute, rates of breast cancer in Barnstable County are 14% higher than the rate in Massachusetts and 22% higher than the U.S. average for the years 2016 to 2020. By county, Barnstable has the second highest rates after Nantucket, and it has been relatively stable for the last few years. According to Oxley, some of the high rates can be attributed to greater screening through mammograms. Massachusetts is second highest in the nation for women being up-to-date on demographic screening. The U.S. average is 67%, but in Massachusetts, 75% of women are getting screening mammograms. Researchers indicate environmental links to higher rates. The Silent Spring Institute, based in Newton, was founded in 1994 and focuses on environmental links to the disease. After its initial research, the instit- Institute found that between 1982 and 1992, Breast cancer incidence was 21% higher on Cape Cod than in the rest of Massachusetts, and women with greater exposure to pesticides suffered even higher rates. Our mission at Silent Spring is to identify how everyday chemical exposures can relate to breast cancer risk, said Laurel Shader, senior scientist at the Institute. We've developed materials and tips to help people take steps in their everyday lives to reduce their exposures that could play a role in breast cancer. In July 2021, a study by the Institute showed that several hundred common commercials, including pesticides, ingredients in consumer products, food additives, and drinking water contaminants could increase the risk of breast cancer by causing cells in the breast tissue to produce more of the hormones, estrogen or progesterone. In October 2022, from another study Scientists identified hundreds of chemicals called endocrine disrupting chemicals that disrupt or interfere with natural hormones. These endocrine disrupting chemicals can alter the progression of mammary gland development, hampering breastfeeding, increase mammary tissue density, all of which can have an effect on developing cancer. Since such chemicals are used in common products like hair dyes, food packaging, pesticides, and furniture, they can also end up in drinking water and accumulate in household dust, making people exposed unknowingly. These findings have motivated our work to better understand the levels of water contaminants in public and private drinking water wells on Cape Cod, said Schrader. The EPA currently regulates around 90 contaminants in drinking water, and there are a lot that aren't regulated. So the groundwater on Cape Cod, which is the source of drinking water for all residents, is relatively vulnerable to contamination. We also found weak evidence of links between increased breast cancer risk and having lived near cranberry bogs when DDT and other pesticides were used. Other studies have shown that exposures to DDT do increase a woman's breast cancer risk. Scientists studies effects of PFAS chemicals on cancer rates. A lot of research work is currently focused on PFAS contamination. PFAS Substances are called forever chemicals because they do not break down. The coalition is currently a community partner for three national projects, STEEP, Sources, Transport, Exposure, and Effects, Superfund Research Center's PFA. REACH, and the third project is part of a larger multi-state study funded by the CDC and the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSDR, on PFAS health effects. The multi-state study focused to learn more about how PFAS chemicals can affect the health of adults and children. The data collection was done in Hyannis and AIR, where nearly 700 adults and 100 children completed questionnaires, had clinic visits, and provided blood samples. This steep Superfund research program led by the University of Rhode Island has been measuring PFAS levels in private wells on Cape Cod. We have been working with the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe to measure PFAS levels in local fish and shellfish, who are surveying members of the tribe to learn more about their awareness of PFAS and their fish consumption patterns, said Osimo, who also serves as the Cape Cod Coordinator for Silent Spring Institute. We also want to learn more about PFAS exposures in Hyannis other than drinking water, which is now being filtered to remove PFAS, said Asimo. Still no definite answer to why Cape Cod has a higher rate even though so much research and studies have been conducted there is no definitive answer to why cape cod has such a high rate compared to the rest of the state we did not find a single environmental factor sort of of a smoking gun that indicates to us that there's one single factor about the cape that makes the difference For Osimo being a cancer survivor, it was imperative to find an answer to this burning question. I thought that by this time, decades later, I would have the answers to share with the community, along with my family members, but we do not have an answer, said Osimo. I have more questions now about PFAS and other possible chemical links. According to Osimo, only 5% to 10% of all cancers are genetic, and she strongly believes the changing environment has a strong role in that increase. According to Shader, another important finding is that it can be very difficult to evaluate the role of the environment with respect to breast cancer risk since exposures can happen during certain critical windows in a woman's life, even in the womb during early childhood, puberty, and adulthood. Does Cape Cod have enough resources to deal with cancer patients? We have all the resources here on Cape Cod and I strongly believe anyone can get the absolute best care here on the Cape, said Asimo, During her diagnosis, Asamo had done all of her treatment procedures on the Cape. Cape Cod Hospital, Falmouth Hospital and Cuda Breast Care Center in Hyannis, all part of the Cape Cod Healthcare, have state-of-the-art treatment facilities and equipment, said Oxley. The Cuda Women's Imaging Center has a monthly support group for women with two years of a diagnosis of breast cancer. There are other support groups available through the Cancer Center, the American Cancer Society, and Cape Wellness Collaborative. According to Oxley, once a patient has been diagnosed with breast cancer, there's a support survivorship program that includes resources at the Cancer Center. A program called Living Fit for You by Cape Cod Seniors is a six-week program for cancer patients on Cape Cod, and there is a breast cancer-specific program available as well. What should Cape Codders do? Mammograms are the only tests that have been shown to decrease deaths from breast cancer, and there are difficult guidelines available for screening, said Oxley. A woman who has an average risk of developing breast cancer should have an annual screening mammogram starting at age 40 and continue as long as she is in good health. Oxley suggests that every woman should have a risk assessment at age 25 and no later than age 30, especially women who are black or have Jewish ancestry. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated Thursday, October 26th. It's time for the obituaries. The first, Carl M. Christensen of Plymouth. Carl M. Christensen, January 16th, 1940 through October 19th, 2023 Beloved husband, father, and grandfather passed away peacefully on October 19th. Born in Boston on January 16th, 1940, he was the son of the late Elmer Christensen and Helen O'Brien Christensen and was raised in Wellesley Hills. He was a talented hockey player and was a member of the hockey team at Boston University. Carl spent his early career in tech sales. He later founded and was the president and CEO of Marshwinds International, which specializes in IT consulting. After moving to Cape Cod in 1973, he purchased Anchor Hardware in Barnstable Village, which he and his wife ran for several years. Carl leaves behind his wife of 59 years, Andrea, and his Daughters and other loved ones and family. Private services will be held. To offer condolences, please visit www.shepherdfuneralhome.com. The next Beth Bumpus of Monument Beach. Beth Ann Bumpus Morse of Monument Beach passed away Saturday, October 21st, 2023, at her sister's home. She was the wife of the late Henry E. Bumpus. Born in Wareham, a daughter of the late Gordon and Joan Greenlow Morris, Mrs. Bumpus was a homemaker. Relatives and friends are invited to attend a funeral service on Friday, October 27th at 12 noon. Visitation prior to service, 1030 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home, 40 MacArthur Boulevard in Bourne, Massachusetts. Interment at South Monument Cemetery. Please visit NickersonBourne.org. Com. Back to our stories. Continuing from the front page. Tax records and street addresses fro- form basis of Truro Voter Challenge by Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Truro. A local resident is challenging 66 voter registrations calling into question the legality of some part-time resident's attempt to change their voter registration status to vote in the special town meeting, according to town officials and documents obtained by the Times resident Raphael Richter, who once served on the Provincetown Select Board, filed the challenges with the Town of Truro Board of Registers last week, according to the documents. At stake in the special town meeting are competing proposals for a new Department of Public Works facility, as well as a housing proposal to build 160 affordable units on a roughly 70-acre plot around Truro Central School, known as the Walsh property. At the Saturday meeting, at which town moderator Paul Wozotsky officially rescheduled the town, meaning several people attacked the housing plan. In an email to the Times, Richter said he cross-referenced names on a list of voters on the official Truro voters' rolls who had registered on or after July 1st, Roughly the time, he said the Part-Time Residents Association began its voter registration strategy with publicly and available tax accessor and property information that cross-referencing determined the list of individuals Richter's believe illegally registered to vote. I believe that many individuals may have changed their voting registration based on inaccurate information, and my hope is that many individuals contact the clerk and remove themselves prior to a hearing, Richter said in the email. Obviously, it is unacceptable to dilute the vote of actual residents by improperly registering to vote in a place you do not, in fact, live. The challenges were made on a variety of grounds. The person doesn't appear on the town annual street listing, hasn't paid vehicle excise tax, is paying personal property taxes in Truro, and or claims a residential tax exemption in another municipality. Though it will ultimately be up to the Board of Registrars to officially determine the registration's validity, several individuals mentioned in the challenges have Boston or greater Boston addresses, according to the documents. The non-profit's Truro Part-Time Resident Taxpayer Association presented a plan to its members in August asking them to change their voter registration to the town of Truro to exert more influence at the since-rescheduled October 21st special town meeting. David Sullivan, former legal counsel to the secretary of the Commonwealth Elections Division, said such a strategy is illegal under state law. When is the Truro town meeting rescheduled for? The session has been tentatively rescheduled for November 2nd, pending hearings for all 66 registration challenges. Town officials said the hearings have not been scheduled yet. On Saturday at the Truro Central School, Wazotsky opened the special town meeting and then continued it. I hereby open this meeting solely for the purpose of continuing it. I will not be taking motions or answering questions at this time. Witsotsky said, shortly followed by a derisive response from the crowd, video obtained by The Times showed. In an email to The Times, the Taxpayers Association said continuing the town meeting to another day and voter registration challenges are a part of this apparent pattern of voter intimidation and voter suppression. In an email, the Association Board did not address any specific challenges. It is the position of TPRTA that all Truro residents have the right to register to vote in accordance with the state requirements and to thereafter exercise the right to vote, including at town meetings. While Witsatsky spoke, several members of the crowd heckled and booed him. Truro Select Board Chair Kristen Reed, who was on hand Saturday, said several members of the public were disruptive throughout the entire event immediately as wazotski started talking he welcomed everybody and greeted him they started booing him reed said it was really really disrespectful and really disheartening many people who demonstrated at saturday's announcement are opposed specifically to the walsh project reed said Truro is hemorrhaging young people. It is hemorrhaging working class people. It is hemorrhaging people who were born and raised here. It is hemorrhaging a community, Reed said. And what we have right now are citizens who oppose the select board goals and objectives to try to make Truro a more sustainable place for everyone. Reed said 80% of Truro is made up of second homeowners, all of whom are able to speak at community meetings and sit on committees. She said as long as members of the community respect the integrity of the town's electoral process, everyone is able to participate. Everybody should have to voice in Truro, Reed said, but your tax dollars, no matter the volume, doesn't give you an additional vote. Another front page story. Born Commission Chair Uses Slur at Meeting is an Apology Enough by Rachel Devaney, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The last thing Jack McDonald expected to hear during an October 10th Born Historical Commission meeting was an anti-Semitic slur. The term Jewish lightning was used during the meeting, McDonald said, by Historical Commission Chairman Carl Georgeson, who was speaking about late-night tree removal on Sandwich Road at the time. I was taken aback, said MacDonald of Pecasset. According to Peggy Shuker, Deputy Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League New England, the term is an anti-Semitic trobe that stereotypes Jewish people. In an age-old trope that finds its way into political discourse, said Shakur in phone interview Monday, in response to Jorgensen's comments, McDonald wrote a letter to the Bourne Select Board to report the incident. McDonald's letter, dated October 10th, said the slur is not acceptable for any use anywhere in modern society, and certainly not in the halls of the Bourne Archives building. In an email to the Times, Georgeson said plans to apologize at the next Historical Commission meeting on November 14th. I'll be making a formal apology for my unfortunate choice of words, said Georgeson. All Historical Commission members are volunteers for the town and are appointed by the select board, according to the town of Bourne website. Is the select board taking the slur seriously? After receiving McDonald's letter, Mary Jane Mestralangelo, chair of the board select board, told the Times she verified Georgeson's words with several others who attended the historical commission meeting. She said also spoke to Georgeson, who said he would make a public apology. I would prefer not "'to have this stirring the pot unnecessarily "'about someone who said something they shouldn't have said "'and is willing to make amends.' Master Elangelo believes MacDonald should have spoken up at the moment he heard Georgeson's statement. If you are setting in a town meeting and someone says something like that, it's your responsibility to say, You know, Carl, that wasn't really a good thing to say. Could you rephrase or say an apology? McDonald shouldn't make a big thing out of it, she said. MacDonald admits that he wished he had said something at the time, but the comment stunned him. It was not called out at the meeting, but upon reflection, I wish I had, McDonald wrote in his letter to the select board. Should there be a zero-tolerance policy for racial or ethnic slurs? Beyond the apology, Mastralangelo said the select board can only ask people to maintain a code of conduct and be respectful when they're representing the town. Georgeson was receptive to that. We are not all perfect and sometimes use the wrong phrase. If he is willing to listen to that point of view, that was disturbing to some people and to make an apology i think that's fair she said he does a lot for the town and he works hard for the town mcdonald said that's not enough it seems to me that the policy for committee members is some tolerance or a little tolerance is that fair is that town policy i believe it should be a zero tolerance across the board In section 3.1.8 of the Bourne bylaws disorderly conduct is defined as using any indecent or insulting language in any public place or near any dwelling or other building or be or remain upon any sidewalk to the annoyance or disturbance of any other person. Any person violating this bylaw shall be subject to a $50 fine. Master Alangelos said the select board tried to initiate a code of conduct policy just before a decision was announced regarding Barron versus Colenda, a Massachusetts Supreme Court judicial court decision that found the town of Southborough's civility provisions for public comment to be unconstitutional and in violations of Article 16 and 19 of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights. We got a lot of pushback and we have not implemented a code of conduct, she said. The court decision revolves around Southboro couple Louise and Jack Barron and a third resident, Arthur St. Andre, who filed a lawsuit against members of the Southboro Select Board, the board itself, and the town. The plaintiff said their rights were violated by the board's action and that the board violated state open meeting law. The decision... Was that she, Baron, had the right to free speech. So there's certain public comment that you have to listen to, and there's nothing you can say because there's a free speech. It's a very complex issue. Antisemitic speech is on the rise. For sure, with the latest war between Israel and Hamas, Georgeson's comments were made during an incredibly difficult time. Hamas Militants stormed from the blockaded Gaza Strip into nearby Israeli towns on October 7th, which coincided with a major Jewish holiday. The Hamas attack killed more than 1,400 people on Israeli soil and ignited a war that has left thousands of Palestinians dead and swaths of the Gaza Strip in ruins. How should people respond when they witness hate? Shakur said people should speak up when they hear statements about any marginalized groups including communities of color and the lgbtq plus community whether it's board members public officials or voters it's important to con- Dem offensive statements or hate speech. Everyone should be empowered to say this kind of language isn't representative of what I believe, and I'm calling it out. But Shakur also doesn't blame bystanders who overhear offensive slurs. People are often tongue-tied when they hear a slur. It's really hard to speak up in the moment. All of us at times wish we found the right words when we know something isn't right. McDonald's letter took courage to write. I give him a lot of credit. Sweeping it under the rug doesn't allow people to learn. After her conversation with Georgian, Angelo feels the historical commission chair is willing to learn from his mistakes. It's important to educate one another, she said. Having good communication and being open in our community and how we speak to and about each other is really important. That is something that the Town of Bourne and the Board of Selectmen values and works towards. In the Cape and Islands section, there is a photo by Steve Hillslip included, and it reads, A calm day on the water on Wednesday at Craigville Beach in Centerville attracts a boater as warm temperatures continue to bring September weather to late October. And it is a beautiful picture of a person walking along the shore with a kayaker in the background. Next in the Cape and Islands section, Falmouth Hospital's new ICU is part of a plan for modernization by Rashik Tabassam Munjib, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Falmouth Hospital, on Wednesday, inaugurated a new 10-bed intensive care unit that will provide patients with improved facilities and greater privacy. The Salerno intensive care unit will set up in what was the labor and deliver area of the former maternity ward. As part of our long-term strategic plan, we continue to upgrade and modernize the facilities at Falmouth Hospital, said Michael K. Lauf, President and CEO of Cape Cod HealthCare. To uphold our commitment to taking care of critically ill patients in the Upper Cape, we knew that we had to modernize and expand our ICU, and now it gives great confidence to the people in the Upper Cape that if you're critically ill, Falmouth Hospital is more than prepared to take care of patients' needs the ten million dollar icu offers brand new facilities according to lauf the new icu has state-of-the-art technology and equipment the unit has new waiting rooms expanding the square footage so family members can accompany their critically ill relatives and friends every patient room will now have natural light and nurses can document right outside each patient's room while keeping an eye on patients for whom they're caring nursing stations throughout the department will ensure that staff are close to patients as well as doctors Though the care within our former ICU was great, the facilities were extremely outdated, said Lauf. By relocating our ICU one floor up and creating a new dynamic one-it will allow us to expand our operating rooms. The effort is part of a multi-pronged strategy. The hospital is redesigning the operating room so it can provide larger, more modern facilities, along with creating a new pre- and post-operative recovery space for patients, said Lauf. The hospital currently has five operating rooms. With the new plan, it will have seven, as the previous ICU unit will be reused. We're so excited to be able to create this new ICU because it helps us retain our staff and helps us recruit new staff, said Lauf. Of the $10 million price tag, $2.5 million was funded by the hospital's philanthropic base. The new ICU and OR expansion are the final stages of the long-term facilities master plan for Falmouth Hospital, which has included modernizing and improving patient room privacy, building a new ER with a fully functioning medical office building, along with radiation therapy, expanding women's health services and imaging, and cardiology and primary care, said Lauf. Next up in the Cape and Islands section... CAPE Businesses Partner with CAPE Abilities in Employment Programs by Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, Hyannis. Andrew Fisher was at his desk in the processing department at Rogers Gray Insurance Company last Friday. The 25-year-old was coming to an end of a 30-hour work week, one he's had for five years. It's a feather in his cap as it is for Capabilities and Rogers Gray coming as it goes during Disability Employment Awareness Month. This year, the U.S. Department of Labor Office of Disability Employment is recognizing the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which prohibited discrimination based on disability and employment in federal agencies, contractors, and recipients of federal funds. This year's theme, Advancing Access and Equity. October is such a perfect month to highlight this, said Christy McComer, Marketing and Communications Coordinator for Capabilities. What is Capabilities? The nonprofit has been helping individuals with disabilities by providing counseling, residential, social, and employment support for decades. Established in 1968, the nonprofit now works with about 40 CAPE businesses and offers community employment services that help more than 100 individuals going into the workforce. James Barnes, Vice President of Philanthropy and Engagement. The job has been a game changer for Fisher, allowing him to work to contribute, to be part of a company, and to be part of a wider community. When asked, he says, without hesitation, that he has pervasive developmental disorder, now known as autism spectrum disorder. Symptoms can include social communication and interaction problems, repetitive behaviors, and a host of other characteristics. According to Fisher, it manifests itself in being adamant about routines. He calls himself an introvert and said he likes spending time by himself because he finds it can be draining to be around other people. Fisher went through capabilities pre-employment program, transitions, and vocational services program. The program taught him how to dress, how to behave, what to say, and how to conduct himself, he said during an interview. He visited two businesses before deciding he wanted to work at Rogers Gray. Something about the office environment and the work reminded him of a movie, Office Space, a 1999 comedy that is a satire of office work, office politics, and the foibles of main characters. It also reminded him of the animated movie character Mr. Incredible working as an insurance claims adjuster. These days, he's in charge of distributing digital mail to the company's 200 employees. Working at Rogers Grays is a success story for Andrew Fisher. Case manager Thatcher Hoyt calls Fisher a success story. Hoyt checks in on Fisher weekly or biweekly, and he's available to help whenever a need arises. He's also available to the employer when needed. I provide help when they need it, but a lot of times I'm just checking in. He's been working here longer than I've been working, been with capabilities. 21% of people with a disability in the U.S. are employed, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and 1 in 36 people in the U.S. have autism according to the centers for disease control those numbers represent a wide range of disabilities and a wide range of symptoms on the autism spectrum disability is a part of diversity equity and inclusion efforts said laura stout director of the contract operations for blue cross blue shield during a panel discussion on october fourth Sponsored by the Massachusetts Commission on the Status of Persons with Disabilities, the five-person panel spoke about the barriers between people with disabilities face when trying to find employment. Their discussion centered around access, inclusion, building relationships with businesses and community leaders, and the need for programs to be business-focused in order to be sustainable. Stout said it was important to put less stress on disability and more on finding ways to be inclusive. It can be challenging for businesses, Barnes said. It's necessary to build trust with businesses' leaders to work with businesses that have solid managers who want to build diverse teams. Hiring differently abled people is a choice managers make. You have to want to employ people with disabilities first, Barnes said. Some challenges are finding management teams who think like that. Rogers Gray has been partnering with Capabilities for more than two decades, helping employ new individuals and as a sponsor and community partner, Hoyt said. It's part of his job to work with businesses, build relationships, be there for them when when the need arises. Having that trust that Capabilities will be there to support them makes all of the difference. For a lot of businesses, it's a leap to bring in people like Andrew to be working with them. They are the ones making it possible. Cheryl Van Gelder is Fisher's manager at Rogers Gray. She admits there are challenges, but some are challenges all workers and managers face. Eighteen months ago, Rogers Gray moved the processing department from Dennis to Hyannis. They outsourced the management of the company's physical mail. It was a big change, Van Gelder said. Andrew's responsibilities changed. We all struggled to adapt. Barnes, who has started working as a manager at Capabilities Farm, said working with disabled people has helped him become a better manager. Becoming a Better Manager "'You get rid of sarcasm,' he said. "'You speak directly to people and wait for their response "'to make sure they understand. "'Those best practices are no different "'than what any manager should be doing "'in their business or organization. "'Stop and shop area restaurants, cafes, hotels, and stores "'hire people seasonally to help with busy tourist season.' The nonprofit runs Capabilities Farm, and they have a program geared to those 14 to 22 that prepares them for the workforce. Fisher said he's always been personable in a lot of ways. He tries to engage with people as much as he can, provides help when is needed, asks for help when he needs it. It's just those little moments when someone needs help moving something or someone is having a rough time and they need someone to talk to. I always try to be there for them, he said. Andrew does a great job, Hoyt said. There's nothing that makes Andrew any different than any of us other people they are working with. I think that's the reward that a lot of our community partners get from being willing to hire folks from our program. The next Cape and Islands story. Christine Clark, Challenged by Toby Leary, by Susan Vaughn, special to the Cape Cod Times USA Today Network Hyannis. Housing, clean water, the environment, and small businesses were the leading topics at the Cape Area's League of Women Voters Forum Tuesday night for two candidates running for Barnstable Town Council seats in Precinct 11, West Barnstable, in the November 7th town election. Incumbent Christine Clark and challenger Toby Leary answered questions written on index cards from the small audience of voters and league members at the Barnstable Town Hall hearing room. Mary O'Connor, the league moderator, read the questions and outlined the guidelines for the candidates. Clark, 66, has lived in West Barnstable for 40 years, is an active volunteer, and has a strong interest in water quality and the environment as a retiree from the town's Natural Resources Division. Leary, 48, has lived in West Barnstable for 20 years and is the owner of a woodworking business and a gun shop and has a strong interest in small businesses as well as affordable housing on the Cape. They were asked what they consider their biggest challenge for Barnstable, for Barnstable. Clark said it's balancing environmental concerns with fiscal constraints and balancing the demand for housing with the competition for land. Leary said the housing crisis directly affects families and the workforce. He would like the town to adopt the state's 40-wide program to create starter houses as the engine that drives the economy and will satisfy the missing middle, he said. Top Issues Facing Barnstable Precinct 11 The candidates were asked what issues in Precinct 11 they would urge the town council to look at. Leary said dealing with many... Tired properties that are no longer needed for retail. He recommended more mixed use and flexible zoning that would modernize those areas and provide incentives for businesses such as restaurants. Clark said Precinct 11 needs to maintain a pathway for drinking water and septic systems, as well as invest in sewers on the south side of the district. She listed water quality and wastewater as the most important precinct issues, as well as housing. She said a lot of the housing issues are dictated by the lack of sewers and two-acre zonings. Solutions to affordable housing in Barnstable. Asked about their approach to solving the affordable housing crunch, Clark recommended focusing on preserving year-round housing. Leary suggested accessory dwellings below market rate rentals and repurposing existing buildings for housings. The last question asked was how the candidates would rate the town's response to the declared climate emergency. Barnstable has been lagging behind other towns on how they address it, Clark said. She mentioned the new Cape Cod Hospital Tower sitting on the water. As an outdoorsman, Leary said the town needs to be good stewards of the environment. In her closing statement, Clark emphasized her knowledge of how town government works and her efforts on the council to introduce a tax work-off program and amendments to zoning. Leary close saying, I know how hard it is for small businesses. He would like more streamlining of the regulations that make it hard for small businesses. Voters were reminded that the last day to register for vote to vote is November 7th. Election is Friday at 5 p.m. at the town clerk's office. And we end our reading today with Today in History. Today is Thursday, October 26th the 299th day of 2023. There are 66 days left in the year. On this date in 1774, the first Continental Congress adjourned in Philadelphia. In 1825, the Erie Canal opened in upstate New York connecting Lake Erie and the Hudson River. In 1861, the legendary Pony Express officially ceased operations, giving way to Transcontinental Telegraph. The last run of the Pony Express was completed the following month. In 1921, the Chicago Theater, billed as the Wonder Theater of the World, first opened. In 1979, South Korean President Park Chung-hee was shot to death by the head of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, Kim jae Kim JQ. In 1982... The medical drama St. Elsewhere, which would make stars of Denzel Washington, Mark Harmon, and others, premiered on NBC. In 1984, baby Faye, a newborn with a severe heart defect, was given the heart of a baboon in an experimental transplant in Loma Linda, California. She lived 21 days with the animal heart. In 2000, The New York Yankees became the first team in more than a quarter century to win three straight World Series championships, beating the New York Mets in Game 5 of their Subway Series. In 2001, President George W. Bush signed the USA Patriot Act, giving authorities unprecedented ability to search, seize, detain, or eavesdrop in their pursuit of possible terrorists. In 2002... A hostage siege by Chechen rebels at Moscow Theater ended with 129 of the 800-plus captives dead, most from a knockout gas used by Russian special forces who stormed the theater. In 2010, Iran began loading fuel into the core of its first nuclear power plant. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Thursday, October 26, 2023, of the Cape Cod Times. Have a wonderful, beautiful day.